Welcome to the Third Down Gamble podcast. It's go time. Previously on Third Down Gamble. Kind of hard to sign guys when the guys don't know who they're going to be playing for. They're going to have to believe in the other guys that are on the team because you don't know. A head coach could come in and decide, well, I'm replacing the entire staff. Or we could have a head coach that comes in and says, you know what, I know enough about this staff that we'll go with it this year and next year we'll see if I have to make changes. Or First down. It's been a busy couple of weeks in the Canadian Football League and as we approach free agency, teams are going fast and furious to bring back some of their veterans. Hi everybody, I'm Don Charbin. Along with me is Heath Graham and Pat Mooney, the usual cast of castaways that uh, find themselves on this leaky boat. Guys, we've seen a couple of signings, uh, Konar in British Columbia, Lawler in Winnipeg, that teams are still trying to get those last-minute deals in before free agency hits in earnest. You bet. We're in that negotiation window right now, and uh, teams are definitely trying to make bids on the players that they would like, and some of the players appear to be resigning, as you just mentioned, and uh, others are looking like they're moving towards entering free agency as a free agent. Lots of work still to be done, but they are still moving forward at a pretty rapid pace. For the uninitiated, I guess we should try to explain this, although it is a little bit confusing because it's only the second year that it's been through, but up until when free agency hits, we are in what is essentially called a negotiation period. Anybody can make a call to any player that is a potential free agent. They're, they're not a free agent as yet, but they are a potential free agent. And then as such, and if you make an offer, you have to formalize it with both the league and the CFLPA so that there's no confusion over what was offered and who offered it. All that sort of stuff is taken care of. A player can opt back into his own team if he wants to prior to free agency they have that right and we've seen that with Lawler and Konar and a whole bunch of other players Ed Ganey tons of them that have come back to play for the team that they were with in 2019 but if they wait until free agency starts in earnest if a player hasn't chosen to go back to his own team the team has that window to make an exclusive bid to get that player and then at the end of that the uh, player can then decide I'm going to accept my team's offer or yes, I'm a legit free agent. Not Nothing that came across my desk was worth my, my interest. Yes, that's exactly it, Don. And uh, for the players, they're, they're able to entertain those offers and find out whether or not the value that they feel they are worth is going to match what other teams may be willing to offer. Uh, the teams that have them right now have also probably made the bids and, and they can uh, decide whether or not that is going to be their best bid and have the option to sign back in or take a look for greener pastures. It certainly appears that some players aren't spending a lot of time, right? Um, you know, you look at the guys that re-signed today, they probably looked at a couple of offers from other teams, realized what they had still at home and maybe the grass wasn't greener and uh, wanted to go back with what they're familiar with and signed with their original team. I think the other thing that's probably the more overriding concern in all of this, and I know it's Heath's idea that he's brought out a couple times before, but I'll just steal it for the moment, is that you're looking at a situation where the teams are rolling down to the lower end of the cap. That means the money just isn't going to be there when we get into free agency. 
as we go towards February the 9th, there are going to be a lot more players that sign with their own teams versus testing the free agent market. Now, that doesn't eliminate anyone. I don't think there's going to be a lot of raises, right? Teams are knowing the, the cap that they've got to spend. Um, you know, I, I think most likely to get raises are those guys that are in their maybe third, fourth year in the league and have showed a lot of promise. Unfortunately for some of those veteran guys that are going to test the free agent market, they're not going to be looking at getting a pay increase. So some of them probably would have been better off signing with, with what they got. Um, and we'll talk about that as we get into some of the players that are still out there in free agents. There was, there was one cut today that I'm sure will be a topic of conversation that I think was hoping for a bit of a raise. It wasn't coming and, uh, and the team decided to go a different direction. Yet I think the GMs, we have to give them some credit. They've taken a look at who their players are. They've taken a look at what they want to spend. We're making the assumption every team is moving to the minimum wage of $4.75 million. So in some cases, teams may have decided that we're ready to move on. I'll, I'll use the example, if you've watched Hafnagel on CFL, uh, he identified the trade that happened with Law and Robertson and, and Rogers. Hafnagel identified that they'd taken a look, decided they weren't bringing these people back for cost, for whatever reason, and then they were able to initiate the trade. So they've done their due diligence, and I'm sure most other GMs are, are just like that, where they've decided how much we're willing to pay each player, and if the player's choosing not to come, that may be when they're able to take some of the monies that they had directed to these individual players and potentially go on the free agent market. For example, today, Machocha identified that they are going to be players. The Owls are expecting to go on the free agent market and take a look at some of the gaps. So again, I think they've built some funds to prepare for some of the free agents that may come available and be able to bid on some of those as opposed to choosing to stay with some of the players they had. Maybe they graded them out and they weren't as high as they wanted, so they felt that they could access either better players there. Or the other option that I would throw out there is, Hoffnagel again mentioned this, you've got two years of rookies coming into the CFL that haven't had an opportunity to play, so you've got a lot of people to choose from, and every year you're going to have a number of rookies that make the team. So they may be able to replace some of the deficits they have with lower paid players, which will allow them to move some uh, money that was maybe designated for those people that do enter into free agency elsewhere. The process being in its second year, we're going to find out how it plays out. It certainly has a different feel than 2019, but of course the economic conditions are quite different. It's the whole point of this, and the NHL, the NBA, everybody else more or less does this in a in one form or another, is that they're trying to formalize the process of negotiation prior to free agency. So the leagues as a whole are trying to eliminate or at least mitigate the prospect of tampering. Um, it's going to give a lot of players a chance to really look at what's out there for them and make an informed decision. You're not going to be waiting by the phone on that free agent day for those calls. You've got the, the teams are laying all the cards on the table. Um, the interesting part, though, is how teams cannot retract an offer. So the GMs really need to look at what their needs are and who they're giving that money to. Let's say 100000 to said receiver. I can't really offer that too many more times because what if they all agree? You've got to be very, very cautious. And this is the, the bridle that's placed on the GMs now is that you've got to be more tactical. You can't just throw all the spaghetti against the wall. I think the other thing that the GMs are then faced with is plan A and plan B. So you put those offers out there and you're tied to those offers. And when a player either accepts or does not accept, then the trickle down effect comes. So I think you'll see 
the signings come a, maybe a bit slower this year so that they have an opportunity to say, okay, we've offered this. Now let's go here. Now let's go here and designate where exactly they want those monies to go because you do have to wait. I think there's a bit of a time crunch on the players to respond in, a, in an appropriate time as well. GMs really need to look at what their needs are and who they're going after. And players have to be aware of what their worth is and where they might fit in. Um, if you're not the the top three or four offensive linemen in the league and somebody needs an offensive lineman, you've got to play your cards right as well. You can't be expecting top-end money. You might be that third or fourth or fifth guy that's getting a call. There's a lot of a lot of uncertainty, and I think the agents are going to be very busy. There's going to be a lot of communication back and forth. But um, as Don said, you can't throw big money contracts at a whole bunch of guys and hope one sticks because if everybody says yes, <laughs> then what do you do? You're going to have like eight receivers in your lineup and a lot of trade bait, I guess. <laughs> it's a real puzzle for those GMs to make sure they have all the pieces fit, and uh, this is why they get the money they get. Yeah, guys, I'm, I'm hearing a phone ringing somewhere. Just wait a sec. i got to take this. We've gotten our news flash from our intrepid reporter. Oh, thanks, guys. Rainer Gopher. How did you make it there? I tunneled my way over here. What brought you to Edmonton? I'm here in Edmonton to find out what the team is going to do with their name change. You have a scoop for us? Yes, I've been following social media and I've been seeing a lot of commentary, but my connections here in Edmonton have come up with the name. So for the first time, here it is. They will be known as the Edmonton... Rainer? Rainer! Oh no, I think we've lost them. CFL players all wear a face mask for safety. With COVID-19 on our field, we also need to wear our masks to keep everyone safe. Do your part. Be a team player. Second down. Heard you talk the other podcast about the Edmonton coaching situation and you guys started to talk about all the potential possibilities and this last week we've had a new coach hired we have Jamie Elizondo who's landed in Edmonton what are your thoughts well for the record that was the first name that we threw out when we were talking to Andrew so kudos to us on that one um, as we kind of discussed I think he was the the choice that we were expecting given his relationship working with uh, some of those offensive weapons and a guy that clearly wanted a chance to become a head coach is now going to get that opportunity in Edmonton. We had Andrew from uh, the Turf District in, and there was a lot of discussion about which way Edmonton management would want to go. And I, I, I sort of tried to do a little summary at the end. I, I thought that jo- you know, Chris Jones was a sexy choice because he'd won the Grey Cup just a few years back. People have a memory of that, but of course, you've got that other sort of aspect to him is that he might just leave town quickly. Uh, Thorpe, you've got a guy that was already there. Mark Killam is the rising star, and Mark Tressman's name came up. Elizondo, and I don't, I don't want to take anything away from the choice, but he is a little bit of a convenient choice because it, it solves so many questions for Edmonton right off the top. They don't have to hire an offensive coordinator. They've got their head coach that can do both. I, I don't I don't want to appear cynical about that because I don't think they did anything wrong the way they went, but it just happened so fast. I just wondered if that was a major concern. Looking at the list of, con, um, of candidates that you just mentioned, though, the only other one that would be in that similar situation would be Tressman. I firmly believe that the reason Elizondo got the nod over Tressman is his relationship working with Harris in the past. 
he's going to come into a, a situation where the quarterback knows him and trusts him. And as you mentioned, they don't have to hire an offensive coordinator. There was a lot of things that would have to fall into place for some of those other uh, coaching candidates to be the ones that got the nod. So um, not really surprised that that was the choice they made. And it might be a choice of convenience, but it's also going to give another first-time head coach a chance to, sh- to shine. He's got some familiar pieces there with him, and hopefully it's a, an opportunity that works for all of them. Brock Sunderland worked with him in Ottawa as well. If you look at Edmonton's constitution, there's a lot of Ottawa red-black influence now in that organization. You've got the starting quarterback, you've got a major receiver, depending on what they want to do with Sir Vincent Rogers, there's still a chance that your left tackle is from Ottawa, your coach is from Ottawa, your defensive coordinator is from Ottawa. The podcast actually raised a question in my mind, and that was the whole issue of team building on another level. We talk about assembling players and trying to get your offense and defense together, but what about coaching staffs? How harmonious do they have to be? Coaches are under a lot of pressure when they're in a season. It's a win-now league, so the coaches do have to be able to work under pressure and believe in one another to the point where the game, I guess, map or, or really the game plan that they're putting out is, is something that not only do the coaches all believe in and agree on, but they can sell it to the players and make sure that they're going to do their best to be invested in that plan, believing that it gives them the best chance to win. So for me, I think it's really crucial that the coaching team is able to collaborate together, is on a familiar, I guess, terms and understanding of what it is that their strengths are so that they can build upon those strengths and have the best chance to put wins in their column. One of the things that sticks out for me as far as team building on a coaching staff as well is the level of trust and not feeling threatened. You don't want to have uh, maybe a veteran defensive or offensive coordinator that's been around a long time. If you're on thin ice as a coach, you're going to have this guy looking over your shoulder. And if you're not performing, putting the, the best product on the field, that GM might uh, give that guy standing over your shoulder the tap and and put him in and you're on the outside looking in. So, um, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of things that you need to feel confident in and trust in. And some of that familiarity of guys you've worked with goes a long way. You've got that camaraderie in the coach's room and you're all looking at the game through the same lens, if you will. Well, you do have a lot of the 2016 Grey Cup champion Ottawa Red Blacks team is in Edmonton right now. That was a winning culture. You want to obviously instill that in a team last year that did okay. They they want to take that extra step. They want to move one beyond that. And I think that's where you start looking to Elizondo and saying, okay, you're, you've worked with Harris. You know what makes him tick. You know the type of offense that suits him. What can you bring else? And this is the question that's going to be raised with him as the season goes on. Elizondo is a great offensive mind, but now we have to see how he deals with the defense too. There's a lot of responsibilities that head coaches have, and they do have to oversee that. But at the same point, I think first and foremost, if he's going to be the offensive coordinator, he has to build upon some of the understandings that they had when they worked together with Harris in Ottawa and maybe trust some of his assistants that are going to assist in that in that area on offense so that he can look at the game management piece because that is a big piece. And, well, Elizondo is is a coach who 
Certainly people were wanting him when he was in Ottawa. He didn't have the opportunity to go to Edmonton or talk to other teams that were interested at that time, but he's he's got all the capabilities to move to a head coach. It's just how quickly can you understand all the nuances of game management that a head coach is required to have. There are some people that make the transition from coordinator to head coach and it's smooth. You have other people that make the transition and it's an absolute disaster. And unless you get the chance, one never knows. And I think one thing that makes a head coach a good head coach is the one that will take ownership if it's a good result or a bad result. Elizondo, as we know, is an offensive-minded coach. Thorpe is a quite capable defensive coordinator. But at the end of the day, it's Elizondo's stamp on it that has the, uh, this is the play we're going to go with. We've seen coaches that kind of get into those disagreements and will maybe throw that coordinator under the bus a little bit. But... Um, if you're going to be truly successful as a head coach, you have to be the guy that says, ultimately, it was my choice to, to go for it. It was my choice to blitz on this play that resulted in a game-winning touchdown going the other way. Um, own up to it, learn from your mistakes, and work with those coordinators, but be the guy that that makes that final decision. The interesting thing that I think, Elizondo's coming into a, a team where he wasn't the one who hired all of these coaches and he's now due to the salary cap and the, and the coaching uh, payments is going to be using all of those. He's familiar with some of them, but not all of them. So I agree with what Don said earlier about how quickly will they gel. He's also coming in late and he's got to set the direction and the philosophies for the team. He hasn't had much opportunity to do that in the off season where a head coach normally would have a lot of time to work through that. So they're going to have to come together quickly and gel so that they can take their team to the next level. As Andrew had indicated in the podcast previous, Edmonton was really under a lot of pressure to have somebody in place before free agency hit for real. It's one thing to try to bring back your veterans, but it's another thing if you've got free agents that you're eyeballing and they don't know who they're going to report to. And that was a real big concern. Edmonton has basically taken that equation and, and, and solved it. Yeah, that was definitely a key. You can't have guys, maybe there's a uh, head coach candidate out there that they don't get along with, and there is no way they're going to sign in Edmonton if that guy gets the job. Now that you've got that name in place, you can look at it as a player and, and think this is a guy that I want to work with and uh, and sign that contract. But the unknown was, I agree, scaring a lot of people away. You just can't go with an uncertainty into any sort of portion of your schedule, whether it's free agency, whether it's training camp, whether it's... And Elizondo, of course, famously left Ottawa at the beginning of April because he didn't get any opportunities to pursue head coaching jobs, and he felt he had to take a stand. Pat, you've really hit the nail on the head in some ways because this is a Milanovic system, and what does Elizondo do with it? Does he take that playbook and set it aside and say, okay, here's the one we ran in Ottawa. Harris, you know what it is and now teach it to the other 11? Well, and he does have to come in. Brock Sunderland, as the GM, has done a lot of work, I'm sure, to determine what are their priorities and where they stand. And so I think when he comes in at this point, he's got to pretty well just go along with, with the discussions that were had before and then put some minor changes and nuances that fit his style, his philosophy, in with the coaching group and then into the playbook and the game management. And I'm excited for this Edmonton football team. I think they're... They've got a good set of coaches. I'm hopeful that Elizondo will turn into a strong head coach. I just 
Uh, still question how long it will take them to get together in jail because they haven't had the whole offseason and he's been jumped in late. I guess the one thing working to his advantage maybe is that uh, we did not see a Milanovic product on the field. It, it would be one thing if they had a lot of success and they had a plan in place. I mean, right now they're looking at whiteboards and they're looking at iPads and they haven't actually got down on the gridiron and, and walked through it even, let alone play a game. It'll give him a little bit of a, a learning curve for sure, but it's also an opportunity to start fresh without having to completely reinvent what they've already been, been playing. Well, he's got something on the order of 100 to 110 days before training camp. That's not a lot of time. In the interim, Edmonton has somebody in place. They can now look forward instead of looking around. Absolutely, and I think we have to remember that this football club is one of the cornerstone franchises in the CFL. They have a lot of good things going for them. They're, they're not uh, brand new ownership. They're not underneath, you know, it's not an expansion team. So they've got a lot of those systems in place, which I think will allow him to step in and be successful. Again, I'm excited to see how this turns out and uh, can't wait till they get on the field. Remember, for proper physical distancing, if you're close enough to shake hands, you're too close. The recommended distance in CFL terms is two yards. Don't get a no yards penalty. Make sure you stay back at least two yards to maintain proper physical distancing. Third down. Well, one of the interesting things in trying to get a free agent list together for a podcast in the CFL is minute by minute, there's players being signed, players being released, and looking to uh, enter the free agent market. So guys, let's start with who's signed recently. Is there anybody that jumps out to you that's been a great signing by their old team? And where do we go from there? Well, I would say that uh, some of the quarterbacks who've signed, and I mean, some cases they signed with their own team, in some cases they signed with new teams. That to me was the big story right now. We've got, uh, you know, some some going back. Mazzoli resigned in Hamilton. You know, Evans was still in Hamilton on an entry contract. But then the big change, of course, which we've everyone's been talking about in the CFL, is the change of location for both Arbuckle and Nichols. Don, do you think this is a good thing for the CFL? I found it fascinating that it was a lot of to do about contract restructuring and when they swapped teams I think they probably came close to what they were going to agree to in the first place. Heath kind of alluded to it. It would make sense for Nichols to wind up with his old coach and it would make sense for Arbuckle to wind up with his old coach and there it was. I think for Dinwiddie he's ecstatic that he's got Arbuckle to work with and I'm not uh, so sure that La Police is disappointed with his situation either. No, I think it, it, it makes perfect sense that they went back there. I think when they actually signed originally for the 2019 season, a lot of people were surprised that it wasn't reversed at that point in time. Maybe it brings them back to where they're going to be with some familiarity with their coaches. And one of the interesting things that Don alluded to was the, the contract structure. It's kind of ridiculous that Ottawa parts ways with uh, Arbuckle over a guaranteed bonus signing bonus or performance bonus if you will and then they turn around and and uh, hand the next guy a signing bonus it's it's a, a funny game when you get into the the financial side of things uh, we're also seeing it with players that are being cut one day two days before they're due these big roster bonuses um, it's an unfortunate part of doing business in a, a league like the cfl there's not a lot of guaranteed money out there and Teams have to make those decisions based on what's best for the bottom line. 
Um, I am a little bit, I don't, don't know if surprised is the right word to see Mazzoli back in Hamilton so soon, but I did kind of think he might test the waters a little bit to see what else was out there. But I guess with uh, with Arbuckle and Nichols landing where they're likely to be that number one guy, there's not a lot of other options out there for him. There is not a lot of room to be the starter in this league. There's only nine jobs, and Mazzoli was looking to unseat someone, essentially, to become the starter wherever he wound up. Ultimately, for him, Hamilton was a good fit. He knows the town. He knows the coaching staff. He has more opportunity to become the starter again there than he would anywhere else. I guess when you've got your number one guy on an entry-level contract right now in Dane Evans... You're right. If he fails to perform, they're not going to think twice about putting Mazzoli back in that number one slot. And they might even be competing for it over at camp. They, they might not have a definite number one guy at this point anyway. I'm not sure you do have a number one guy right now. You have to remember back in the last season played when Mazzoli started, he was on fire until he got injured. And then Dane Evans stepped in and he did very well. Uh, they structured things around him. But Dane Evans, much like Arbuckle, maybe isn't uh, that tested in, in the number of games that he's played. And, and sometimes we see those quarterbacks, and I'll go back to a, a name from a while ago, Casey Printers had an outstanding rookie season. When it came to season two, when he was the man in charge, he floundered a little bit in BC. And we may see that out of the Arbuckles and, and potentially Evans, and that's where I think this puts Hamilton in a great position because I, I still see Mazzoli as probably your 1A, and Evans is 1B, but I think it brings a lot of competition out in camp as well, which is great for an organization. Well, two things to that. One, Mazzoli's coming back from a knee injury, and that was a pretty bad knee injury. The second thing is that other than the Grey Cup game, Evans put up some pretty strong numbers throughout the entire season and was the man for the moment. I don't know that it's a, it's a situation where, oh, we've got a salary over here that we can just put on the bench. I think that Evans... I think legitimately is their their starter and that Mazzoli is going to have to see him falter severely before he gets the job. Yeah, I guess it all depends on how well his knee is recovered. And, and also, at the end of the day, it's the offensive coordinator, I think, who decides what quarterback will give them, in his opinion, the best opportunity to win. He's got to work that out with the head coach as well. But I think they're in a great situation because I believe either one can help that team win with the tools and the individuals that they have on their team. Speaking of offense, there's been a couple of other big re-signings over the last few days. As we kind of talked about with the head coach situation in Edmonton, Greg Ellingson fell into place very shortly after that. And BC, probably the number one free agent that we've had our eyes on for quite some time, Burnham has re-signed with the BC Lions. He's such an important part of BC. I would equate him to someone like G. Roy Simon. When you think of receivers in BC, those are the guys that you're going to go to. And Burnham has been, in my opinion, one of the top receivers in in the last number of years. So I think it's great for BC. I think it's great for the CFL to have a pass catcher of his abilities to be back with that team and familiar with the quarterback because we're going to see a lot of exciting plays come from those two. You look at the top 10 catches of any season from the time that he's been playing, and he is always in the top 10 somewhere doing something unbelievable. Yes, he is, to me, right now, he is the best receiver in the CFL, and I, I think BC, I don't know what took so long, but I'm, I think for them now, they're glad it's over. Yeah, he had to be a name that they did not want to see test the free agent waters. I, I think any team would try to find some extra money if 
they had a chance to get a player that impactful on their roster and BC must have done everything that they possibly could to lure him back and, and lock him up. So speaking of impactful players, we've got three defensive linemen that are out there. We've got Charleston Hughes, Cordero Law, and Amondo Sewell, all available. Now, two of them were cut. Law wasn't going to sign a contract in Calgary, got traded to Toronto, may not sign with them. And if he doesn't, then he's going to be out there. So you've got three very talented players ready and available. You wonder if some cases uh, you're going to get players like this, and I would add Micah Johnson into that as well, um, who are going to potentially look at shuffling around the league. The teams have decided what they want to pay them. If they don't get the money that they think they're going to get, they may sign for that same money in another team. Just, just that sign of, from a player's perspective, disrespect, right? You're not willing to pay me what I think I'm worth, but they may go sign for the same thing offered in a different team, and we have a little bit of a shuffle of those defensive linemen. Yeah, one of the things we definitely saw today with the uh, Charleston Hughes situation was it doesn't appear like it was a lot of money difference in the end. And is he going to be a guy that's going to hold that grudge and uh, and and maybe sign for uh, sign with another team for about the same amount of money? But he might be out to to prove that the Riders made a mistake. Now he is a 37 year old lineman, so age is starting to creep up a little bit on him, but. The season he had in 2019 certainly indicated that he's still a very important part of any team's pass rush and can be a solid lineman for a couple of seasons still to come. Yeah, for the 15,000 that they were apart, you wonder what else was at play. Was it a question of that the riders just said, that's it, that's our breaking point and we're not going any further? And Hugh said, well, why not? Or... Like we're not privy to those conversations, but when you're that close, you think there's some wiggle room? Well, and not only that close, Don, but it came out today that uh, last year he was going to be playing for 157.5, and the riders had offered him 150. That's a 7,500. He actually said he went down from last year. So Hughes is uh, indicating on Twitter, which he's putting out there, that he's actually, it's less than $7,000 or 7,500, obviously. Not much of a difference. So, I mean, this team's taking a hard line. It's easy for us to sit here as, you know, uh, prognosticators and say, well, why wouldn't you pay him the difference? But at the same point, he's had a year off. He is much older. And if he doesn't work out, that's a significant amount of money for the riders to leave out there. So Jeremy O'Day, it seems like Jeremy O'Day is taking a hard line on this one and holding and saying, this is what we're willing to pay, period. And at the end of the day, it may also factor in that Charleston Hughes is serving as his own agent. So he's hearing what, in this case, the GM is going to tell him about what they see of him as a player. If we look at kickers, Justin Medlock, we've got Brett Lowther, we've got John Ryan. There's still kickers that have not signed anywhere. Medlock, I, I don't know if it's just a contract situation or maybe he wants to test the waters. I can't see why. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm I'm surprised he hasn't re-signed yet. I think Winnipeg would be kind of foolish to not give him a really strong offer, but maybe he feels he was a, a very key part of winning that Grey Cup and that he, uh, he figures there may be a few more dollars out there for him. Usually a kicker, once they settle in with the team, are, are there for the long haul. You know, a, a guy like that that's probably the top kicker in the league or top two kickers in the league might think he's worth a bit more than they can offer. They have spent a lot of effort on getting a lot of other guys re-signed, so there might not be as much left in the coffers 
uh, to sign a guy like that. There are a number of these players as well, and we have to keep this in mind. Uh, a number of these players, well, their contract's up. They didn't make any money last year. So in some cases, it may be holding out to see if they can get at least some payment. They may be looking for some surety or some form of income. They've been working hard to keep in shape and, and be a viable kicker or whatever their position is. So it may be in some cases that they're asking for that and teams just aren't willing to put that money out on the table. Could be too that they're looking to get the sign closer to home. Now, John Ryan, clearly he's a, from Saskatchewan. It, it would make sense for him to re-sign here. But Lowther isn't, and he might want to move back to closer to home. The f- top two of the uh, CFL uh, most coveted free agents are gone, but three and four are still available, and they're two Canadian linebackers. you got Cam Judge out of Saskatchewan, and you got Anak Moamba. I don't know if it's a case where each one has decided maybe they're just going to bet on themselves right now. Yeah, that could be a real big change in Saskatchewan if Judge is gone and Hughes is gone. Those are a couple of really key parts of that of that defense, especially when you've got a ratio breaker in a in a solid linebacker like Cam Judge. So if both of those guys end up somewhere else, it's going to be a real struggle for Saskatchewan to fill those holes. They've got their work cut out for them, but maybe they look at somebody like Mwamba as an alternative. And uh, if they've got the right offer for him, he might be somebody that comes in and slips into that linebacker spot for the Riders. Well, there's Solomon Elamimium too in Saskatchewan. That There was sort of this thought that if Hughes doesn't come back, then they'll sign Elamimium, but maybe they won't get either. Well, there are still some other linebackers out there. I think of Larry Dean. I don't believe he's signed with anyone yet. And and so maybe teams are taking a look at, at potential cost-cutting measures and saying, okay, Elamimian at his age, is that something that we want to go with? Or, um, you know, are there other options out there? And some of those linebackers are going to be playing that field to see what's out there. They may be also having feedback from their coaches or the way they've graded that makes them believe that they might have a better opportunity in a different location. I'm really interested because we are down to basically the last week. There's still a few big names that are out there. Uh, Seawall leaving Edmonton stunned me. I thought that Edmonton would keep him. If he can go, Hughes can go. Let's go back to where we started. Um, when we talk about quarterbacks, there's still one quarterback on that list that, that I think is in an interesting situation right now. When we talk about McLeod Bethel-Thompson, uh, he's been playing in, in Toronto, but I think some other teams may be looking at him to potentially be their backup. Where do you see him landing? I don't know if anyone is that interested. Oh, Lord, I have no clue. To me, a, a team that is a possibility for him, actually, would be another quarterback going to Ottawa. I, I think you've got somebody like Bethel Thompson and somebody like Nichols as your quarterbacks aren't that different in how they play. And, um, you know, it might be something that, um, you know, if they're ever concerned about Nichols' health, he has had a couple of longer injuries that, you know, you got somebody like Bethel Thompson that can step in and run the offense the same style and, and the same way, and Lapo doesn't have to redraw everything and reinvent the wheel if something does happen. But Ottawa has signed Davis, so they I think they've already penciled in their, their starter and their backup. So I'd be surprised if Thompson would be heading that way. I would think another option still is to re-sign again in Toronto. When you have Nick Arbuckle, who has limited experience as a starting quarterback and, and has somewhat unproven you might want to have someone in behind and that's where Bethel Thompson might be asking for a little bit more money too and and having trouble with negotiations with Toronto because we know what happened last year or the the last year the CFL played where he got a lot of opportunity to be on the field due to injury 
But if you're Bethel Thompson and you're reading the tea leaves, I don't think that Toronto is that wedded to keeping him around. I really believe that he's going to wind up somewhere else if he winds up somewhere else. And that's the other thing that I think we have to countenance is that there's a good possibility that nobody signs him. And he may be a, a guy that's picked up later in the season. And there are a lot of teams that are bringing three or four quarterbacks to camp, or more in some cases, five. And there's going to be some, I think, quality quarterbacks that maybe haven't had a shot in the CFL, but teams will see some potential in those individuals that may not make one of the other teams. Now that we're down to two quarterbacks on a team or else a quarterback playing special teams instead. Yeah, and I think one of the things we're going to see, uh, I think that was a great point, that he might not get those offers. He's not likely to be the only one. There might be some seasoned veterans out there that have played their hand wrong and aren't going to get that offer that they're hoping for. And you might be looking three or four games into the season, uh, a player goes down and it might be an opportunity, but if you don't land somewhere right away, you've got to get yourself game ready and hope for the best. If you don't sign early, the wallet doesn't get any thicker. And the opportunities are limited too, Don. This is the one season, I think, that you don't play the waiting game. If you get a reasonable offer and it suits within your expectations, then go for it and get it done. Because I just don't think come second week of February, when free agency is in full session, that there are going to be a lot of dollars being thrown around. Well, I think the teams are going to want that too. They need to know once they put those qualifying offers out or offers to new free agents, are you signing or aren't you? So we can move on to the next one to fill any gaps that they might have. It's going to be fascinating. February 9th can't come fast enough. We've got linebackers galore and defensive linemen. They've got to be somewhere. The defensive player shuffle. Maybe that's what we call 2021. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. That's spelled at T-H-I-R-D-D-O-W-N-G-A-M-B-L-E. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio. Worth watching.